Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. I'm back. Hello. And this week... We talk about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Again, sorry. We talk about new centrist parties. And we talk about Brexit because we kind of feel like we have to. So the boys are back in town. Am I the boys? (laughs) Is that what you're saying? Hello. Um, It's really nice to be back. I have a confession, which is that I did kind of cheat on the New Statesman podcast with two other podcasts while I was away. I went on the uh, Romaniacs podcast and then I did one that hasn't, isn't out yet that was just basically a podcast where people asked me questions about myself for an hour. So you had time for, to do other podcasts, but not here in our glamorous bunker. I think you did really well without me. You didn't need me. You moved on. But anyway, it's kind of the New Statesman podcast to take me back. And I wondered if this week we could talk a little bit about... What like, like, let's take the opportunity to have a recap, maybe, of the last couple of months. What have I missed? Well, actually, so I I would be intrigued by while you were on your like you know in your ranch thinking big thoughts for your book. What's the publisher of the book? Jonathan Cape. Out, Jonathan Cape. I just feel like seeing as you're going to start doing that all the time, I should ease the listeners into it now. Yeah. All good bookshops. Yeah. 2019 slash 20, depending on whether or not I managed to (laughs) file it on time. I think the thing that you always notice when you take a bit of time off politics, and actually I had this conversation with my parents who've just returned from four months in the um, Southern Hemisphere, is how little changes. When you're living in the middle of it, it seems like this incredibly overwhelmingly frothy, like micro developments. And if you go and do the Sunday shows or anything like that, then you have to not only know the current positions of everybody, but every previous past position that they've moved through, right? Which in the case of something like the Corbyn anti-Semitism rally, you just need to have the timeline absolutely nailed down. But when you actually look at like what's different, what has actually changed, if it were a play and you were trying to look at what the protagonists, like what have they learned, how have they changed, what, you know, what synthesis have you achieved at the end of all this, it's often absolutely nothing. Like where was we with Brexit at the end of January compared to now? Exactly the same place, I swear. Well, we've now agreed a transition period. What, which we knew that we were going to want because it was the only way for us to go, please give us more time to make this work. Okay, right. Because I would say that in the time you've gone, Theresa May has become uh, more secure. The long-running concerns uh, within the community about Labour and anti-Semitism have exploded back into, I was going to say, national consciousness. Uh, I don't think that's true, but they've been covered in Westminster, at least. But again, and I just how new are those? This is the thing that's really interesting, is those concerns aren't new, right? They date back to at least... 
2016 when the Chakrabarti report failed to kind of settle the issue. And actually, really, to the first time the Jewish Chronicle asked about that mural yeah, was 2015. The, the seven questions or six questions or... Yeah. There were questions and there were more than five of them. And I don't know, um, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn's relationship with the sort of mainstream Jewish leadership organisations has moved on significantly at the end of this week compared to where it was at the end of the you know, immediate aftermath of the Chakrabarti report? An awful lot has happened to get to exactly the same place, as far as I can see. Yeah, okay. So it's a good question. My instinct is, um, so I think the significant change in terms of Jeremy Corbyn's relationship with majority opinion in the community has probably, I think, actually also, though he will now meet with the Jewish Leadership Council and Board of Deputies, both whom have dropped their preconditions after Corbyn agreed to their agenda, Jenny Formby will attend. I, I think that his... Oh, so Labour have got a new General Secretary. That is new. That is new, yeah. yeah. Um, his relationship with the with majority opinion in the Jewish community, I do not think is likely to improve all of that much. Uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are to do with uh, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, some of which are to do with Israel, some of which are to do with... Um, I think he was well within his rights to go to a cedar with uh, his allies on the Jewish left in his constituency. However, I also think it is reasonable for people on the board of deputies, people in the community, to interpret that as a bit of a two-fingered salute to some of their feelings about the demonstration. However, I think crucially, you know, ultimately, if you look at the history of, of, of Gentiles waiting for them to vote in the interest of the Jewish people, you will look a long time. Crucially, I think what has happened is I suspect he has done enough to reassure people who aren't in the community that his heart is in the right place on these issues. So Yeah, it's very fine to explain. I went on the state programme to talk about this and I was like, well, this is a kind of classic Jeremy Corbyn insider-outsider dichotomy, right? Which has been the the issue all along in his leadership is that people who follow these stories incredibly closely end up with a different view to the people who just see the big picture. And if you try to explain to someone who's not really massively up on any of these things to say... Jeremy Corbyn went to a Seder, went to a Passover celebration meal with a group of Jewish people after a week in which he was criticised for not listening enough to Jewish people. People go, well, that sounds great. Well done. Good job. Good job. And you have to go into quite a fine level of detail to say, well, the thing is that, you know, Judas are a legitimate group. They're entitled to opinion. They're often very hyperbolic and very satirical. But, you know, they are firmly within the community. They have done work to combat anti-Semitism. Nonetheless... It does feel like, as you say, you're picking the group of people who are, as you wrote, you're picking a group of people who essentially are your comfort zone, who already agree with you, when the specific demand of you has been that you make yourself uncomfortable by listening to other people. Um, but I have no hope of communicating that ever to anybody who's not following this story. I mean, honest. however, the kind of question that I ended up not being able to pose in my column this week is because I could not make it within the word count. I could not introduce it, explain it, and dispatch it in a way that that didn't wasn't inelegant. But can I, I say that, that? Can I interject and say the thing that was quite sweet about your column was finding out that because you're the only grandchild of your generation, you always got to ask the questions in your Passover. Yeah, that may actually be why I am the way I am. Let's, uh, <laughs> uh, but. Um, it's really sweet. Just um, imagine, like, baby Stephen being like, why is this night not like other nights? Why do we lean to the left? And why do we only have unleavened bread? But anyway, the crucial issue, you know, it is very much not true when people say, are you saying this is anti-Semitic? You actually mean it is anti-Israel. But for a large number of people in, in the community, support for Israel is hugely important because although people wouldn't actually want to go there, they like the idea that it exists as a safe 
place than they could theoretically go. And support for it is kind of a a signal that people get their values. I basically think that Jeremy Corbyn is never going to want to be or be able to reach that group. However, what he can do, and I think he is now starting to, is to do enough to have merely as um, fraught a relationship with the Jewish community as Ed Miliband did. Yeah, I went back through the cuts, actually, because I thought I'm going to really see whether or not how much criticism he did get. And the thing is, Ed Miliband comes from a Jewish background himself, and I was very kind of I think very clear about his criticisms of Israel. But he supported Palestinian statehood. He was very critical of Israel over the uh, Gaza War in 2014. And you know what? He did come in for a lot of criticism for from places like the Jewish Chronicle that are quite just frankly hawkish on those things. You know, they're, so there is going to be a unless you know Labour leaders dramatically change their stance towards Israel, they they will definitely get commu- criticised by some bits of the community that are just. Hawkish. Well, I also think it's not even just about um, uh, being critical. Um, so my grandfather, which as you know, I wrote a bit in the, about in the column. Never, re- we never really talked about Israel other than once after the very small synagogue in Nasaka in Zambia, uh, an argument between some liberal American from an NGO and um, someone from the Israeli embassy who uh, my grandfather always liked to claim to me was in fact secretly the head of Mossad in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I have no idea if he actually thought this was true or if he just liked it annoyed my mother to, to claim this. But um, they was had this argument about the state of Israel and its, its various policies. As you would expect, the liberal American was against and the possible Mossad agent was for. Um <laughs> And uh, he kind of said nothing and kind of sort of broke up. And afterwards in the car, uh, he kind of turned to me and said, God, Israel's a bore, isn't it? And the, but I think the reason why that was true for him is that he, the community he grew up in in, in England trained him to be a, a, a medical professional, professional. And, you know, he married out without um, being, you know, the subject of an aggressive or, or racist reaction. And the community he made a home in, in Zambia, he was a respected pillar of both the Jewish and non-Jewish community. So the idea and appeal of Israel of somewhere you would want to flee to had no salience to him. So I don't think it's even about, uh, because you're right, the JC is very much the most hawkish of the various um, uh, Jewish publications. It's not even, I think, about um, that level of, of hawkishness. It's for a large number of people. It's kind of like, I suppose it's the same level of reassurance and knowing that a politician thinks stop and search was abused before 2014 has for a lot of black yeah. voters. It's just a sign oh, that, okay, you get what I'm worried about. You, you um, and, and I think... Don't you think Trident falls into that yeah. as well? Like, I don't think that the vast majority of people in this country want to immolate people in a nuclear fireball, but there are, a, for whom, a lot of people that says that's a way of saying that I take Britain's defence really seriously. I think we're a big boy, we're playing at the table. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a signal. I also think the thing that I didn't understand um, until a couple of years ago, because, you know, I grew up in the Midlands where, you know, Britain's Jewish population is extremely small and, and highly concentrated in London. So that's another reason why I think you were talking about, about people voting on the basis of this. For lots of people, this is a very abstract kind of argument. And the thing that I don't think I'd recent, clocked until recently is the idea of the, the intense double standard about Israel. And you hear these tropes on the left all the time about, you know, this is a stolen land. And you don't hear them in mainstream discourse about America, which is just as equally a kind of stolen land from the Native Americans, right? I think that there is an idea that uh, there is a kind of the idea that Israel should be held to some higher standard that actually we don't acknowledge all our own endless histories of colonialism and, uh, and oppression. 
Yeah, and I think that there's definitely an aspect of anti-Semitism which is holding Israel to a higher standard. Equally, the United States, for all of its uh, faults as a settler nation, did not shoot any protesters this week. No, but it uh, did massacre on the Trail of Tears, hunt thousands and thousands of Native Americans. I think that's the thing that's interesting. Yeah, and I, you're, but you're right to raise that because I think one thing that I think people are, I think people are reluctant to just not even. To, it's not that thing of I don't want to criticize Israel in case I get accused of anti-Semitism. It's I don't want to criticize Israel because this I know that I'm. It's like my equivalent of putting my hand in a wasp's nest, right? Um, I think it's just one of those subjects that people know they don't want to be involved in and actually not having an opinion is kind of safer. But you're right, we should be incredibly... It's a very right-wing government. It's, you know, propped up by even further right-wing elements of their coalition partners, very nationalist. And I think that what we've done in our leader columns this week is we've done two separate leaders, right? We've done a leader that's about labour and anti-Semitism and we've done a leader about about Gaza and what Israel's doing there and about the fact they should cooperate with a, an independent investigation. I think it's much more hygienic to keep the two separate as separate as you can but it's not always possible yeah and i think um the yeah and the 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 difficulty yeah one of the things i found maddening in some of the responses to my free morning email that's still going then that hasn't changed in two months that hasn't changed and you actually can now sign up again yeah so that is something that has changed (laughs) something has been fixed on the it um when i've written about it and you get a reply about you know isn't this just about criticising Israel? And it's one of those things where I both find it deeply depressing from a personal reason, but from a professional perspective, I find it deeply... I feel I have clearly failed somewhere if there are people who are reading my email who don't understand that, like, I actually cannot work out how you get from um, Netanyahu is uh, an obstacle to peace. Actually, I don't even get how you get from I don't think that Israel uh, should have been created. I don't even get how you get from that quite maximal uh, position to the Holocaust was faked. And I do not understand the, the the fact that a large number of people on the left seem to believe that this question of like, but how can you say one without somehow lapsing into the other? I mean, they're not, I, I don't, what, what are even the degrees of separation? Um, yeah, you're right. One of them is a political opinion, which can be wrong. The other yeah. is an argument with the concept of facts themselves. Yeah. But so, yeah, okay. I guess that one hasn't uh, changed that much, although I, yeah. I think your Theresa May thing is interesting because I saw in one of your morning emails, because I signed up before the problems began to plague the sign-up process, that you were saying you know, they could, you could even see a situation in which Theresa May might lead the Tories into the next election. And that, like, six months ago, that would have seemed like a wacko opinion. I'd have been phoning in to check that you hadn't just accidentally eaten something you'd left out in the fridge for three weeks before writing that. So I think there are a couple of reasons why that is the case. The first is, is that no one wants to get rid of her before Brexit is finished. But do you know what this has got a terrible echo of? Let's hang on to Nick Clegg and dump all the toxicity on him and then get rid of him just before the election and then the Lib Dems will be fine. And guess what? Narrator, they did not dump Nick Clegg before the election. It was not fine. Well, this thing, so let's say in the London elections, it feels, sorry, the local elections, it feels likely to me that Labour will take control of Swindon, Maybe you know, win Tamworth on the day. It's it's all up, so it's it's up in thirds. I mean, so it's quite hard for them to take control. But I can tell you, know, win it on the day, as it were. Wins Wandsworth, wins Westminster. All of those things seem to me quite likely uh, from the very unscientific metric of I went there and knocked on some doors and went, "Hey, how do you feel about politics, guys?" That is as bad as it can basically get from a local election perspective. They're obviously not going to get rid of her this year. 
they're not going to get rid of her next year when in any case i actually suspect partly because of the unwinding of ukip actually the pretext will probably be quite thin hey ukip raised whatever it was 370,000 pounds they're not bankrupt also they're not well i mean a... they're not financially bankrupt <laughs> Yes, that's pretty true. In terms of ideas, I'm afraid. And I kind of felt when um, Gawain Towler, their long-running press aide, left, I sort of felt that was like the ravens leaving the Tower of London. I felt more like the tower leaving the tower, <laughs> to be honest. Like, there's just a raven just in a <laughs> in a hole in London. Yeah. Just being like, God, I swear when I, when I went to bed this morning, there was a building around me. Yeah, it, it is... Um, I mean, the, the fascinating thing is, in general, the problem uh, that the nativist right has had is that the demand among voters has been higher than the ability of nativist parties to get their uh, act together and actually appeal to them has been right they have tended to you know they've they've tended to be a supply side rather than a demand side problem whereas the problem of course of new parties of the left under new labor and new parties of the center under corbyn is very much a demand side problem but there is a multiplicity of supply well, should, does... we, should we should we stop then and should we come back to the new centrist party, because while I've been away, of course, multiple new centrist parties have been founded and we live in their shadow today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Do you know what? I just remember what I thought on the way home last night. I thought that I would I was going to celebrate being back by doing the... Eminem rap about being back, but I'm not. I'm going to spare you that. If people want to hear that, they should write in. Please don't write in. <laughs> it was going to be really good. I can remember um, it all. I did it myself to myself on the way home last night. It's great. Wow. <clears throat> so the research time was used well. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so we, we do have a question from Rachel. Should there be a new centrist party and should David Miliband lead it? <laughs> yes, from one Rachel S. in London. Um, yeah, so Rachel Sylvester, the Times columnist, wrote, I think, and I think maybe used the word saviour. Um, and this was really funny. This was the most outpouring of bile that I've seen among kind of political correspondents since, oh, what's his name with the spider? Gavin Williamson. Yeah. And then everyone just went, oh my God, we hate Gavin Williamson. You know, and, then, and the FT ran that report of just people just calling him the C word and all sorts. And you were like, whoa, okay, people. I didn't realize that you felt so strongly. Anyway, it turns out people feel similarly strongly about David Miliband. Like, there are, I got told multiple stories about the fact of like, he could have done better. He could have won that leadership election in. How long ago is it now? 2010. 2010. Um, because it still had the Electoral College, MPs effectively had a golden share. If he just won over a few more MPs by being nice to them, and they've the strong feeling is that he threw that election simply by assuming that it was sort of he was sort of entitled to it and being quite kind of rude to people. And there were lots and lots of stories from lobby journalists of just kind of casual rudeness. And you were like, okay, so probably not Mr. New Centrist Party then. Yeah, I mean, he, he definitely did uh, throw that election for a variety of reasons. He wasn't nice enough to the 2010 intake. I don't know why I said intake in such a weird way there, but I did, so we're just going to roll with it, I guess. He did not do what he... Yeah, ultimately, because of how the Electoral College worked, neither Ed Balls or Yvette Cooper voted for anyone other than Ed Balls. 
if David Miliband had phoned Dead Balls up and said, I will make you Shadow Chancellor. I mean, weirdly, because this thing, imagine David Miliband became Labour leader. What would he have had to do? He would have had to make Ed Ball Shadow Chancellor and then he would have had to give Yvette Cooper her pick of Shadow Home or Shadow Foreign. Otherwise, that would have been an awkward evening in the Balls Cooper household. However, he could have... It's one of those things where just like... If you were going to have to do that anyway if yeah. they placed highly in the ballot. It, so why not offer it them in advance? So you could have offered it in advance because, as happened, yeah, we forget that obviously in 2010, when Ed Miliband became leader, he did not make Ed Balls He had Shadow a crack at making poor Alan Johnson, who really was not up for it. And did not give Yvette Cooper her choice of, of posts and instead shunted her off to Shadow Foreign, where she got a bit lost for a year. Um, so That's this right, she really pulled it back when she moved to Shadow because she stopped her op- uh, wow. opponent so effectively that that person never was heard of again. Wow, damn, that was... I can't believe I just witnessed a drive-by shooting. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think then there are... Yeah, well, as I know this become, has sort of become my sort of like... But ultimately, I do not understand why so many people in politics do not understand that if you cannot win your selection... You can't win an election. You can't win an election. It's, That's good. It, that rhymes. It, it, I mean, it, it is literally just like you have you you have to pass the practical as well as the written yeah. exam. This is like the Bernie would have won thing. Well, he didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, it's some of those things where also and also in both cases, I mean, it's odd because you have like two groups of people on both sides of the Atlantic, both of whom believe they don't have that much in common, despite the fact that from a policy position that gets quite awkward quite quickly. Both of whom, it's just like no, no, no one lied to you about the fact that you have to get a bunch of like early retired public sector workers who like Europe, don't really like America and like fairness to vote for you if you want to be Labour leader. Like, sorry if you failed at that task, but but no one tricked you. Ditto, like, you do have to do better among African-Americans than Bernie showed any sign of doing throughout uh, that primary. And there's this, this weird way when people talk about those two elections, then there's this idea that, like, there's a group of people in authority who um, who need to learn from the process. Now, that... That may coincidentally, that may tangentially be true, right? You can you can make lots of fair criticisms about how the, the institutes of the Democratic Party ran the presidential election. You can make lots of fair criticisms about how the Labour Party under Ed ran the 2015 election. However, neither of those things were why those candidates lost. But the other uh, hilarious thing about David Miliband for, well, no, there are many, many hilarious things about it. One of which is, of course, isn't like running the International Rescue Committee is quite an important job. And this weird way that everyone kind of talks about it, like, you know, like, you know, oh, if only you would come back to instead lose your deposit, you know, in, you know, I don't know. I, I was, I briefly considered speculating about which MP I believed would die first this parliament. And then I decided I wanted to keep my job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. And I saw someone did a tweet that was saying like, oh, no, David Miliband's not going to like come back and lose to Jacob Rees-Mogg in the next election. And I thought, oh, God. Um, but I think, yeah. The And then the third problem, of course, is. I mean, there are many, many reasons why a centrist breakaway won't happen. But one of them is you need to have someone who can command who who the others in this alleged group would defer to. Well, why would Yvette Cooper defer to David Miliband? Why would Chuck Ramuna defer to David Miliband? Why would George Osborne defer? Like, just you, you've just suddenly got this weird thing. Where you're just like, but why would this? Like, I mean, from a journalistic perspective, I think it would be great because um, there it gave us something to write about. Well, also, this thing is ultimately intrapartisan beef is the best beef to cover, and it's the beef that people are the most interested in, right? Um, yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the sad truth, isn't People will continually claim that um, 
they want to read about the partisan problems of the other side, but actually people love the kind of vanity of small differences. There would be a hell of a lot of vanity and a hell of a lot of small differences in this putative group. I, I back it for that. Yeah, reason. but also I do, but, but it, the trouble is it's, it's mostly about Brexit as it's currently constituted. I don't see that actually people who are trying to glom George Osborne onto David Miliband and Chukka Amuna and, you know... Like, do we not... Have we forgotten the concept of austerity? Like, I know that, you know, Labour, particularly under Ed, sort of triangulated towards it. They were still, you know, they were... There was still £80 billion worth of fiscal gap between the two of them every yeah. year. Like, and his instincts always are of a small state and, and, and of cutting back. And, and you might argue that the financial crisis just kind of really gave them an excuse and a kind of frame in which to do that. I just don't know how and such a fundamental economic difference can be glossed over about the fact that they're both against Brexit. Well, I mean, yeah, th- this is the thing. It's just like, I mean, one of the other things is people go like, oh, you know, Blair and Major, two people who literally fought an election to, against one another on quite different... Actually, if you look at those two manifestos, right, like you don't look at these and go, ah, ah, yes, there's a common platform for government here. That's just simply not the case. Um, as well as all of those not inconsiderable problems, the broader thing is, is it feels that all of these ideas, they know what they're against, Brexit, Corbyn and May. Now, lots of people are against Brexit, Corbyn and May, However, one, that Venn diagram is not a circle. And also it's not a Venn diagram that encompasses enough people to get you enough votes to form a government. Yeah. So ultimately what are you... Okay, let's talk about the Lib Dem, Stephen. Yeah. How are they getting on? I, To be honest with you, I, I don't... Okay, so, so, so Joe Swinson sent me a tweet and I think that might be the only time I've heard from the Lib Dems since January. So... I had a very troubling moment. I've been doing this series, my usual annual series in the run-up to the local elections, of, of basically I like to set out what I think a good night will be. Uh, so then in advance, uh, it when someone spins me, I can then remind, yourself, remind myself yeah. of what I actually believed. Um, now, I had finished all of these series. I was uploading a Liberal Democrat one, and I went to look for a picture on the Getty Image Archive. And I thought, oh, I need to find a picture of their leader. And I typed Tim Farron. Aww. And I think that sums up very well part of the Liberal Democrat problem. Well, the only newsline I can think of that Vince Cable's got is that one where he said Brexit voters were elderly racists. And it was like one of those things where you were like, eh, I can kind of see that's for a very small number of men on Twitter. That is kind of very exciting. But it was going to lead to bad... You know, it was, it was a kind of deliberately oppositional thing to say. So I think one of the things that... Um, uh, God, I'm slightly worried and I'm going to start sounding like a Tim Farron fan account, but I'm just going to push ahead through the awkwardness. One of the things that Tim Farron got right, right from the beginning of his leadership, is you know, he's, you know, in his victory speech, um, he basically went, look, the coalition means that we are just never going to be the party that like everyone loves and is a big, you know, we are going to have to have a different type of voter and we need to and we need to be basically decide there are issues which we are willing to be unpopular with the majority of because the minority that really cares about these things will be with us and crucially is bigger than the 10% of the vote we got and he identified uh staying in the European Union at the time housing refugees and another one now so i think that's it gay sex no, it turned out that being unpopular on, on, on gay sex and its sinfulness was not one of the positions they ought to countenance being unpopular on. Although it turned out, of course, that it, it in fact was a position that he thought. But yeah. I think like the, the slight problem that the, 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 the slight problem the Liberal Democrats had was that um, 
in Tim Farron, they had someone who politically had the correct diagnosis of their problem and their solution. But in terms of the things he actually himself believed, it was like if you genetically engineered someone to not be the effective message carrier of that. You mean you need to, yeah, because Brexit is so bound up with social liberalism that it was just very hard to Um, mash those two things. Yeah, somebody who was quite hardline Christian with an anti-Brexit message. And I think the thing is, I, I think the Brexit is, you know, the result of angry racists is fine if you're going to say it every week. Uh, and you're a party whose who's aim is to get 15, 20% of the vote. The problem was, problem was he said it once, and a lot of the time he, um, he kind of uh, gravitates back to the Vince Cable comfort zone of kind of standing slightly sideways to the Labour Party going, isn't it a shame that they're not as nice? But ultimately, that that position I don't think is very lucrative when Labour are in an opposition full stop. It's certainly not lucrative when Labour are in an opposition and they're being led from Labour's left flank. Um, it's just a, a dead end. Um, and also, you know, there has been, I think, a kind of, it seems to me from the outside, an almost conscious effort to unlearn the things about the back of house Lib Dem operation that made it very effective. You know, You're going back to the sort of Charles Kennedy donut strategy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but you know, just kind well, of. No, no, I'm thinking. Not, I'm not thinking of the donut strategy. So the donut strategy was the London mayoral thing, right? Which is yeah. that the difference between inner and outer London. The Charles Kennedy thing was about you kind of fortresses, right? You kind of build up a council level, and then you have an activist base that helps yeah. you then win an MP. Um, yeah, and I think I was just thinking about donuts because I had a donut. And you had half a donut, so I was happy. I retrieved it from the bin in its box. <laughs> that is literally a true thing. That um, I mean, it had been they, they hadn't bitten it in half. I cannot believe you threw away that donut without my consent. Anyway, moving on from uh, donut strategies and donuts in general, the, the the problem that the Lib Dems sort of have is that they have taken away kind of yeah they used to have a very fast often very funny press department if you're if you are the lib yeah, dems right the, the like, only way that he tweets yeah the only way that you are going to get your quote in as well as the labor party because they are the official opposition is a if your quote arrives first and b if your quote is funnier than is not i was actually i was about to say funnier than the labor party. that's actually not true it has to be objectively funny because like you know if you if you think about it, right if you're writing a piece about any kind of like big divide in politics you obviously do the big two parties um and then if it's scottish or welsh then you do the two nationalist parties but the lib dems because of their current size have really got to fight for every inch of space they had a great setup for that a lot of people left yes because they wanted to move on but i think also partly not i think also definitely in some cases because they just weren't made to feel like it was worthwhile them staying on um there's been an awful lot of kind of quiet dismantling of a very effective operation but now they've got this kind of problem and they're sort of stuffed every which way because if Vince Cable were to leave or to get a grip, that machine wouldn't re-emerge overnight. And but, sorry, but I just think that all of this. I think you're right about the kind of when Labour being left from its Labour being led from its left flank and the effect of that. But doesn't that make the only question that's interesting to ask about the next election is how you know where do the Blairites go? What what does how about how much how bad does a Blairite have to feel about the Labour Party that they will jump to the Conservative Party? That's a big psychological barrier. I just think it's that's kind of fascinating to me. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I don't know. The, the question is, is that, is the third of the Labour vote, which has doubts or, you know, is, is some degree of agnostic about Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, are they Blairites? Um, 
I know, I know. Uh, I, I can't believe like, I use the word Blairite when I've had a go at people of using the word uh, Blairite. That's yeah. hypocrisy on my part. But you know what I mean? What I mean is Labour's right. Labour's always right. Or even in terms of voters, people who are swing voters who are... Yeah, I, I just... How big is that caucus and how much does it, what can that affect the next election? I think is my biggest question. Because I feel like... The Lib Dems don't feel like a none-of-the-above party at the moment. That's the point about it, right? They're not the kind of receptacle for people who know they ought to vote, um, but don't really know how to. Well, the thing is, I think, so that, the, the the known unknown about the next election is, yeah, that third of the Labour vote, which doesn't doesn't like Corbyn very much. Will they vote Labour again next time because they want the Tories out? Will they vote for the Tories because they don't want Corbyn to be Prime Minister? Will they decide that the following question is too difficult and stay home? Um Will they vote for the Lib Dems? Now, the, the kind of ace in the Tory hole is provided the answer to that question is all of those four, then they are probably fine. That is probably a good backup plan. Labour kind of need the answer to be the first. However, the Tories, I don't think, are really doing any of the things you would want to do to ensure that it isn't the first. Yeah, then, then those people don't decide, well, I have doubts about him, but I really don't like that or whatever that is led by but i do think that's also part of the lib dems problem if you have two parties which can which inspire yes affection but also fear real fear on both sides right yeah it's never safe to vote for someone else i, I this thing is those about those three circles of not liking brexit not liking corbyn not liking may there are people who would say they agreed with all three of those very few of them however when you put a gun to their head do not have an opinion yeah this is the other thing i've been doing while you've been gone just <laughs> Even holding a lot random of people. people up and just being like, honestly, Corbyn or May, pick. And the Fox thing I now, bitch. and the thing I've discovered when you put a gun to someone's head mm-hmm. and ask them which one of Corbyn and May is better prime minister is two. They start crying and beg you don't even have a family. But the second they thing is that they they will ultimately come the crunch, pick one of Corbyn or May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I just think. I mean, that's the thing is I just think it's a kind of a problem we need to kind of look in the face, really, because you just have all these jokes about, you know, basically drunken men accidentally founding centrist parties. And there is a lot of energy there. I from. Mean, a, is it a joke if it happened? <laughs> it's more of a joke if it happened, I think. But um, there is a, clearly a lot of energy there. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in... But then this is the kind of my problem with modern politics anyway, right? It's a kind of amorphous rage rather than, you know, that like there are definitely things if you think Brexit's a bad idea that you can do that don't involve founding a centrist party. And like I wrote a column once about feminism, about, how, about men's contribution to feminism. And like men always want to turn up and kind of have opinions. Why am I not allowed to have opinions on it? And you're like, the best thing that men could do for feminism is to do more unpaid caring labour. But that's not quite, that's not what people want, is it? In the same way that you could just, you know, help fund a legal challenge. You could do any number of kind of campaigning things in your local area. But what people want is to have a have a bit of a shout. And I, you know, sympathise with that because I love having a bit of a shout. But I'm not going to found a new centrist party. Yet. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not sign up for Stephen's morning email now that the sign-up form works again? You can find it from his Twitter feed, he's always tweeting about it, or uh, there are sign-up boxes under the Stamfest on almost every piece on our website. Hold up. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.